Welcome back to another exciting episode of Keep Agile, Keep Farming, the podcast for farmers looking for inspiration to try out new things and become more adaptable to change for more resilient farming. We are your hosts, Nick and Gwen. In this episode, we have Sinjin Craner with us, the mastermind behind Agrarian, a New Zealand-based company revolutionizing sales and marketing in agribusinesses. He shares insights on how farmers can take their marketing game to the next level and connect directly with consumers successfully. Sinjin is not just a seasoned entrepreneur, but also an author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster, sharing his knowledge and expertise far and wide. Get ready to be inspired as we uncover the secrets to breaking down barriers and building stronger relationships between the farm and the consumer. Sinjin, okay, so seven years ago you wrote a report predicting that disruptive technology in agriculture would reconnect small farms with the consumer. Has this prediction come true yet? Uh, Nick, great question to start off with, and I know you're – I can can hear a journalistic – question when I hear one look I think the the way I would answer it is like a politician's answer I think we overestimate the short term and we underestimate the long term so there have been some success stories where farmers are creating their own brands or they're clubbing together and they're creating their own sort of regional um, shire or district kind of brand and we are seeing examples of that but um, it's it's been slower than we think and I think the reason for that is that I think the I think the meat processors, the dairy guys are starting to really get their marketing game sorted. They're understanding the importance of uh, story and provenance uh, and and the backstory of those farms. So I think, yeah, ultimately is I think we're still not going to suddenly see all farmers markets go online and every farmer selling to consumers. Um, but I think over time we will see that accelerate further and further. So yeah, it was a, it was a heady, it was a heady prediction um, and I was willing to put it out there, but um, we can we can unpack that a wee bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll probably return to that a little bit later on. But Gwen, <clears throat> yeah. So, but um, you know, you said there are some farmers are already doing it. Um, what are you seeing? Um, are the main characteristics of farms that have been successful in marketing more directly to the consumer? Yeah. So we um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to be a bit parochial down here in New Zealand where we're talking from. We have a uh, very smart, uh, we're two, two smart companies uh, locally to us. Uh, one is Atkins Ranch, and they sell through to Whole Foods in the US. And um, what they've been really successful at doing is getting, collaborating a like-minded group of philosophical kind of open-minded farmers. And they have to jump quite a high number of hurdles to get farm accreditation schemes, um, animal welfare schemes, non-tantalized posts, all these kind of details in order to make the grade. And the great news is if they get that, if they get that um, grading and they get all that certification accreditation, they get a really good market signal back, which is a profit pool that's shared with them. So they have a, what we call a producer pool payment. And that producer pool payment can be anything from, you know, depending on the year and the seasonality that Whole Foods have managed to make that margin, they will share that value back with the farmers back here in New Zealand. So this is premium lamb. And, you know, that that producer payment can be anything, because we're talking kgs here, not pounds. Um, that could be anything from 30 to 70 cents extra per kg. So that could be 
you know, another another with current schedule prices, uh, that could be another ten to fifteen percent that farmers collecting when they collaborate together and they really get their story story down pat. Um, another example of that would be uh, First Light Foods. They are a premium Wagyu uh, grass fed Wagyu, not grain fed, because usually the marbling score of Wagyu is uh, determined uh, the grade and the marbling score by by grain. Um, very much so, more so in Australia and in uh, America. <clears throat> Here in New Zealand, they're trying really, really hard to push uh, grass-fed Wagyu, and they're doing a pretty good job of getting into. Uh, they have their own um, meat club or barbecue club, uh, which is uh, going going great guns in New York. I can't share the commercials; not privy to those either. And you know, you, you've got examples of. Um, we also have a local, uh, and these are just you know smaller, smaller uh, like per farm examples. Mike Barson, who I interviewed for my Kellogg project, he has a very sensitive um, nitrogen catchment uh, on his farm that leads down onto the lakes of Lake Taupo, which is our main massive lake here in the North Island. And Mike has been very successful getting his story correct and getting his attributes right. And he's at the Hilton in Taupo, and he is the highest priced item on that menu by a country mile so you know when you when you can get your story right there is a market signal but the value chain has got to be willing to share that uh, share of the profits with those farmers to make it worthwhile for them to jump through all these uh, loops and all these hurdles um j- j- just going back to the report briefly because you said something really interesting uh that farmers would be able to regain marketing control by kind of morphing into these sort of micro farming brands uh, in the same way that craft the craft beer business has done are they now starting to you know seriously challenge the the big players yeah another great question the answer is no uh, i think it's a work in progress i think what's happening is uh, the intent is there, but I think what's happening is the big guys, and and I think you know I put in a report that you know particularly millennials and generations coming through are very distrustful of big food manufacturers. What's happening is you, with my examples of um, Tapa Beef or with uh, Atkins Ranch or with First Light Foods, they're getting a cooperative of farmers uh, and a small sort of district sense of farms together who are expressing the unique story and provenance that they have. And they're able to monetize that. And as a result, you know, the big guys are recognizing actually uh, big isn't best, but small is beautiful. And they're really tapping into that. You know, when I was last back in the UK, you even seen it in Tesco's, you're seeing the UK farmers, um, you're seeing individual farmers' stories in the stores, in the point of sale, in the activation, where the big guys are really understanding that, as again, big isn't best anymore. Um, everyone's really distrustful of big because it has that connotations of big processing. <clears throat> Small is very much beautiful. And when you get when you can craft that provenance and that story, I think that's really where everyone can share share in that in that premium. How how would you define sort of craft farming? Because if we take the craft beer analogy, that's generally uh, perceived and, and marketed as having this emphasis on unique flavors and and, and varied brewing techniques and and, and sort of enthusiasm. Uh, colourful um, packaging, that kind of thing. I mean, is there anything that you can take from that into into craft farming? Yeah, I love it. I love this whole concept of craft farming, which I sort of we we alluded to on the report. Uh, in New Zealand, uh, government's really got behind um, a company called uh, Headwaters, which is getting a, a club of farmers, um, predominantly down in the South Island to grow their lambs on particular crops. 
um, like chicory or plantain or kale or beet or swede. And what they're doing is they're measuring the input of that crop, not just from a feed conversion efficiency, but a way in terms of how it's expressing the tenderness of the meat. And you know how you talk about sort of like the hop guys and girls that get mad about craft beer. There are certain discerning consumers at the top of that value chain that love the specifications. And with headboarders, what they've done, and they're still working on, particularly in Korea and Japanese markets, straight to restaurants, is what they're doing is they're um, making sure that they're really owning the omega-3 story of prime lamb. And they're achieving that omega-3 quality by the crops that they're putting those lambs on. So there's a very specific crop or recipe that those lambs are following and where they're finished and fattened on. And as a result, that's then expressing the product. And then they're obviously commanding a premium getting into those into those restaurants. So um, not quite craft farming, but getting closer, Nick, in terms of, um, you know, a craft farm brand of um, like-minded farmers on special special specifications, special feeding regimes and rotations that allow those animals to express that omega-3 genetic, which, um, you know, the restaurants are looking for, they're looking for a point of difference in their menu, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think do you think the big boys might want to trump this idea and, and produce their own uh, brand of, of, you know, craft uh, products just just to marginalise them? Do you think that, that there's a danger of that? I think it's always a danger. Um, and we've seen it play in so many different industries. I think what's happening is, again, you know, I keep rattling on about um, big isn't best and small is beautiful. I think the big boys are really, the big manufacturers and the big retailers are trying very much to harness that provenance story. And they are probably trying to do it on their own. But the problem is, the question I've got is, is that story going to be authentic? Is it going to be genuine? Is it going to have the depth and richness that a real story has? Because, you know, the, the modern consumer, a sophisticated consumer that's choosing that on the menu <clears throat> or choosing that for a unique event like an anniversary or a wedding or a significant decade um, birthday, um, do they do they associate big producers with small craft? You know, because there's an oxymoron, isn't there? You know, putting a big, big food producer or retailer with a small crafted brand, it's... Uh, it's quite a sort of it's kind of an oxymoron or a juxtaposition. So sometimes I just don't think big and small go together. So, you know, to answer the question, I think the big guys will try, but I think at the end of the day, unless they have the truth and proof behind that small brand, maybe maybe rather than um, replicating it, they're more facilitating it, Nick and Gwen. Mm-hmm. So I think you know what they'll do is they'll put their resources behind it and say, right, um, you know, we we again we've got uh, farmers which is called spring lamb um spring lamb company and what they're doing is they they're 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 very cunning these kiwi farmers they're basically marking it as um a sea salt lamb now i'm probably doing them a huge disservice but i think they've done a terrific job um the only reason they they call it like that is because they're basically farmed right next to the sea and they're not feeding sea salt but they're trying to find they're trying to find those points of differentiation and then the, the discussion then goes to scale and then sustainability and stock supply and, and, and 365 security of supply. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know if the big guys can squeeze the little guys out. I think what they would do is it's a bit like uh, when you ever see disruption coming, the big guys usually can't beat them, so they buy them. Gwen? 
Yeah, and you mentioned consumers are buying the why rather than the how and what. And um, can you elaborate on that a little bit and what it means for farmers when they're putting together their marketing plans? Yeah. So what, what it means is most farmers, not all, abdicate their responsibility for marketing when their stock leaves the gate. So as soon as that stock's gone past the farm gate, they stop caring about it. There's no, no line of sight, no consideration no visibility to that in consumer. That whole kind of why concept, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. The why connects with the, you know, the limbic, the emotional part of the buyer's brain. So, you know, the fact is that, you know, uh, I might uh, produce uh, cattle, that's great. Uh, that's the what. And the fact that I might actually feed them um, uh, a particular type of crop, well, that's great, but that's only the how. So what I want to know is the why. What is it that's particularly useful about your dry stock or your meat or your um, dairy? What is the differentiating? What is the emotive bond? Because the play that farmers are trying to make here is all farmers complain they don't get paid enough money, right? And we know that they don't really get a fair fair share of the value chain. They only get food producers only get from research around ten to thirty percent at most, and it's worse for dairy and in, in a lot of developed countries. They only get 10 to 30% of the actual end retail price, which is sometimes not enough. So if they want to get further up the value chain, as you rightly suggested, Gwen, they've got to really, really understand their why and their differentiation. Because if you don't, if you aren't different, you are a commodity. And the only lever you've got to pull is price. So I think it's very important that farmers start to develop what I call a marketing conscience and understand they have a social license to operate. What is different about the farm? What is unique? Is it the system? Is it the landscape? Is it the generations? Is it the history? Is it the family? Is it a particular way that they do something that delivers something different? Because we all know in the consumer FMCG world, people will pay a premium for a brand. You know, people will pay a premium for a um, a grass-fed piece of Wagyu steak versus a grain-fed. And, and that's <clears throat> that emotional play is to do with the fact that that's in keeping with nature and the animal and the philosophy of that. And that's going to appeal to certain conscientious consumers who's going to pay more for that premium. So the why is inherently linked with the brand. And, you know, it's not, it's not rational for a human being or a consumer to pay for something if they don't think it's worth it. And it's the battle in the brain and winning the war in the consumer's mind about why your produce will be worth more than someone else because if you you know that's the mass customization the big food producer industrial complex at work there we i think nick said it really well around the craft farming it's really understanding the emotional why factor that connects with the emotional quotient limbic brain part of the buyer's brain that allows them to pay for things more this is why people buy range Rovers or jimmy Choo shoes or iron william boots or apple max or harley davidson's they could buy, they could buy a much cheaper commodity version. They could they could drive to work in a Ford Fiesta or a Suzuki Swift or a Volkswagen Polo, but people choose to drive drive to work protected in America in a Hummer. There's a there's a there's a predictable irrationality to that because people will pay a premium for a brand. So farmers have really got to get their heads around brands, and I don't mean logos. I mean understanding the why you do what you do and what makes it different. So. When, I, when we talk to clients and we help market clients, we talk about three things for them. We get them to commit to the discipline of defining and documenting their brand. So it's a key 
decision support tool. And there's three questions we want that farmer to understand, which is first, who are we? Secondly, what do we stand for? Thirdly, what makes us different? And that's that's the why. And and when you get that why right and it's substantiated, then that's when you can command a premium because your story is different and that's why you can command a different price. And um, yeah, so we've got um, one final, one final, final question. Yeah. yeah, it's based on marketing as well. Yeah, um, because, yeah, so, I mean, you've already given a few recommendations, but what are some of your recommendations for farmers wanting to market their products um, more directly to the consumer? Are there any some top tips that you would leave us with, like as a take-home message? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate, and privileged to work with a lot of um, stud and um, stud producers here in Australia and New Zealand. And I think uh, one thing they need to be is they need to be consistent. So they always say content is king, right? And we all know this, but I, I actually say consistency is key. So if you're going to be on your Instagram or your socials, your Facebook, you need to really be turning up and showing up all the time. It's not enough to, you know, my stud guys and seed stock businesses are not enough for them to just turn up for seven or eight weeks of the year pre-sales day. You need to be there three, six, five. It doesn't mean you need to post seven times a day. But, you know, you want to be building a bond. You want to be building familiarity. And you only do that through consistency of content and you know, make sure as a farm uh, that you're really clear on, like I said before, with the earlier question around the why, is make sure you commit to the discipline of defining and documenting your brand. That doesn't mean a logo. It doesn't mean getting the crowns out and, and making things pretty. It's about what is unique about your farming business, your stock, your produce. You've got to find that point of differentiation, and it's got to be backed up by proof and truth. So it's really, really important that when you push that product, that it's substantiated and it's a promise that has, or a proposition that has strong foundations behind it. So consistency of content, socials are good. I would always, always build your list. I think it's an insurance policy for any farm. If you can capture email and everyone says, oh, I can't capture email. Yes, you can. You just got to put out really good content that people want an exchange for for an email. So you've got to do your lead capture and your lead nurture, as we say in the marketing world, and you've got to build that list. And, and to keep it simple for farmers here, what I'm talking about when you build a list is a database or a list of emails and client contacts. And think of it like a holding pin. It's a prospect pool, a holding pin in your yards of people that might want to buy from you in the future. So I think that's a really important insurance policy. And then the last one is, you know, you have your farm plans, your health and safety plans, your nutrient plans. I would challenge forward-thinking, foresighted farmers to think about their marketing plan and what what are they about? What makes them different? How are they going to communicate? How are they going to uh, maximise and optimise their, their owned media, which is their website? I think it's really important they have a website. Very important to have some SEO, which is search engine optimization, or big chunky words there, guys, but you would understand it. Farmers, key words that people are looking for. You need to have content, a blog, a social, an email list, because different people are going to consume your content in different ways. Now, if I was going to be starting out as a farm doing this from dot, I would get a website that told my story really well, and I would get the ability for that website to capture some emails in exchange for some information or content um and you know if you can't bring people to your farm bring your farm to the people 
and you know have an open day stay connected make sure you maintain that line of sight with your consumer because you've always got that then in your back pocket of sometime you get really fed up with your processor and you go right i want to build a brand then you've got that holding pin of prospects to sell to so it's really it's a contingency plan it's risk mitigation and it's something you need to think about for the future if you ever want to sort of go down that kind of track yeah i mean is, is there anything Sinjin, that you'd like to add anything that we may have missed or any, you know any, anything at all that you think might be useful for our listeners look i mean you know your listeners are sort of front of the curve progressive more innovative farmers perhaps uh there'll be some in the mainstream as well and i, and I think the key is to try and do one thing really well rather than lots averagely or, or in a mediocre sense so you know just like i've spoken about you know when you, when you're sitting around the kitchen table with the family think about the farm think about what's different about it think about what's your reason for being what's your purpose what's your cause uh what sense of belonging can you create between you and your consumers because it really is your insurance policy and that holding pen of prospects is massively massively important because what you want to do is you want to make sure that you've got that ready to go if you ever want to flick the switch and you want to be um marketing directly to farmers but you know my, my last message would be don't be overwhelmed or um yeah fearful of marketing um but most importantly think of marketing as a unique position you want to own in the market's mind um, think about somewhere in your consumer's mind a specific ideal customer and a specific position you want to own don't think about logos and colors and websites generally you need to go deep in that you need to be thinking strategically not just aesthetically Many thanks to Sinjin for that very informative interview. Okay, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes featuring industry trailblazers like Sinjin as we continue to explore the cutting edge of agribusiness and beyond. So, until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.